Hi there, I'm Grant Wall, and welcome to the Planet Football Podcast. This week we have something special. I recently moderated a panel at the International Champions Cup launch in New York City with five members of the 1994 U.S. Men's World Cup team. Alexi Lalas, Tony Miola, Claudio Reyna, Tab Ramos, and Kobe Jones. Just a quick reminder, it's a huge help if you subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast. It helps people find us. Onward! Let's introduce these guys here. Alexi Lalas. The goalkeeper, Tony Miola. Midfielder, Claudio Reyna. Midfielder, Tab Ramos. Winger, Kobe Jones. So there's a lot to talk about here. I, I'm kind of geeking out here, to be honest, because during that World Cup in 1994, I was a 20-year-old sneaking into a bar in Cambridge, Mass., to watch you guys play your games, including the victory against Columbia. Uh, this is really cool. I'm wondering, how often had the five of you been together in the same place since that World Cup? I don't think we have. Seriously? Okay. We do see each other, but not all together at one time, yeah. Well, it's a really special occasion then, so sure, this yeah. is awesome. Um, I wanted to ask, uh, to start here, um, what was this opportunity? How would you describe the opportunity that you guys saw in the years leading up to 94 to play in a World Cup in your own country? Claudio. Um, well, my, my story and my path, I was, I was the youngest member of the team. Um, and in 92 and 93, I was playing in college, University of Virginia. Um, the pre previous big experience I had was to play in the Barcelona Olympics in 92. Um, but to be honest, I, I didn't know if I'd get the chance. And after the final four, uh, I got called in by Bora and I was joined the, the, the group that was out in California. Um, and I really didn't know what to expect. I, 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 I didn't, I always dreamed of playing in a World Cup, uh, but to have the chance in our own country was, was, was amazing. I was young and kind of taking it all in, being around these guys that I looked up to, and uh, it, was, it was an incredible experience. And I think we would all say we're a little bit surprised in terms of how big it was of an event, and the turnout and the fan support from our own American fans was amazing. So you guys had a coach, Bora Milutinovic, a Serbian guy, kind of eccentric. Uh, who wants to describe what Bora was like? Alexi. <laughs> he, does. He, was like, uh, he was like Yogi Berra and Yoda mixed. And you know, he, would, he was incredibly frustrating to a lot of players. Um, and depending on, on where you were in your career and, and certainly your age, for me, he was huge because he made me look at the game in a completely different way and asked me to think about my game and the game that I was playing and every moment of the game uh, in ways that I hadn't thought of before. For some older players and players that were further along in their career, it could be incredibly frustrating. The type of trainings that we did, the constant testing, not just physical testing, uh, psychological testing, but you know, ultimately there was a method to the madness in that he had to choose 
the best, at that point it was 22 players to represent the, the country, and he was constantly evaluating as to who in that moment was going to be able to do the job, not just on the field, but in the context of a team. And all of these, you know, all of these tests that he had, as frustrating as they were at times, you look back and you see why he was doing it, and you know, it's, it's, it's psychological, and all coaches and managers go through it. It's why they call them managers. He had to manage a bunch of crazies um, and a bunch of players that were at different points in their career and, and very, very different personalities and put the best 22 together, and th that was the assessment process. So this was sort of unusual in the couple years leading up to the 94 mm. World Cup where a lot of you guys were in residency together. Um, you know, national teams typically are not. Guys are with their clubs and come in on occasion with their national team. This must have been like a really hardcore experience. What kind of camaraderie developed with this team inside your team? Well, we, we trained twice a day for two and a half years, and that doesn't happen anywhere. So essentially what happened was they decided that the best thing that we can do for our national team is bring everybody into Mission Viejo, California. Now how tough that is, right? Let's move to Mission Viejo. And they housed, I don't know, 30, about 30 guys, right? When, and we had, a, we had a group of players, Tab being one of them, that were playing in Europe at the time. So I guess the theory, the thinking was that those guys in Europe were getting the training that they needed, they were getting the games that they needed, but we needed to supplement the guys that were in the U.S. We didn't have Major League Soccer at the time. Uh, that was still a couple years uh, down the road. We didn't have a league to play in. I came back from England at that point to be part of the national team because I thought that you know, being together, building something would have been the best way. Um, and, and to think about where we are now, what an undertaking that was for U.S. soccer. What, a, what an amazing sort of idea, first of all. Um, financially, we weren't near where we are today. Uh, so they really had to stretch themselves a little bit. As far as camaraderie, like I said, we were um, two and a half years, twice a day, the only days we had off, right or wrong, Bora checked that schedule and it was pouring rain out every day. So we never got to the beach. Well, the only time we did get to the beach was to run, right? And that's essentially what we did for two and a half years leading up to the World Cup. But Kobe, Kobe and I, when we stepped on the field, and, and you, Claudio, when we stepped on the field in 1994 for the first time, we had never been on the books of a professional club. So we did it completely back, which is why when you look at our generation, we, we all have a lot of caps, because all we did for two years was run around the world and play international games. But it was very backwards as to, you're supposed to go to a club, have success, you get identified, then you go to the national team and, and, and you have success. And we didn't do it because the culture and the climate and just the, the reality of America in 1994, well, 1992, 93, 94, uh, such that you could, you could play professionally on a consistent basis and get the level that you needed, and U.S. soccer recognized that. I, I think one of the issues that everyone has to realize, and Alexi makes a great point here, is, is that that was our professional team. That's what we were doing, playing, training twice a day, all the time, doing all that training every single day. That was our professional club. That was the first time we saw that. That's the first time I definitely had experienced anything to that level where you're day in and day out training, and, and it gives a little bit of credence to U.S. soccer, a little bit of, to, for their foresight, and to Bora of what he was trying to do. So when we talk about the psychological um, tactics that Bora used on a, lo a lot of us, especially the young players, I mean, think about that from a coach's perspective. You have young kids that have never seen a professional environment before, and you've got to pick some of them out to join the players that are in Europe to participate in a World Cup. 
the biggest event ever. So you have to take some extreme steps moving forward. Month-to-month contracts, too. So it was like this reality <laughs> show. Every <laughs> month, people would come in and out, and if you stayed, you just said, God, please get me to June, yeah. <laughs> to the summer of 94. And if you stayed, you stayed, and it was, then it was rotating cast of characters. A lot of, a lot of big names came through, and you know, it didn't work for whatever reason. So. so, Tab, heading into this first game of the World Cup, you're playing Switzerland, you're playing in the Silver Dome, the former Silver Dome, indoors. What, were you, what was your goal in the group stage? What are you thinking heading into that first game? Yeah, so first of all, you know, to sort of end a little bit of this part of the conversation, for, for the ones who were returning from Europe to join the team, we only joined the team a couple weeks before the World Cup. So we, we sensed the um, sort of the frustration of the players who had been there and had, done, had gone through the whole process because obviously, as they say, it had been difficult to be, you know, it's difficult to be together with anybody for that long period of time and, and, and to train in that environment and on top of it to have to have a contract month after month, uh, you, you could sense a little bit of the frustration and the relief at the same time that, hey, I made the team now, so now I'm good, but at the same time, you can't let your guard down because now... Okay, you made the team, but this is not the end. Like, this is the beginning now. So, you, you know, and so you would sense that a little bit. And, you know, going into the first game, I think one of the things to, you know, to, to recognize, um, you know, for someone today is that we were in a completely different place. So, you know, if you, if you backtrack only five years before, you know, we were excited because we had sold out, you know, St. Louis Soccer Park with, you know, 5,800 people or whatever it was, you know. And when we saw the sold out sign, we we're like, Oh my God, you know, national team sold out a game. That's huge. So now we're going into a World Cup just five years later after, you know, having been in, in Italy 90. We go into a World Cup in which, you know, we know we're going to have full stadiums. They're at home. You know, this is like, this is huge. You know, as Claudio was saying before, I think we were all impressed by the magnitude of the event and, and the reaction of the American public for it, too. Um, because we thought, you know, regardless of how big soccer is in the rest of the world, we're still being ignored. Um, and so, yeah, so we head to the first game. We, you know, we go to the Silver Dome. We have a nice meeting the day before the game in the middle of the field, if you guys remember, uh, which kind of, you know, actually now that I coach, I, I, I sort of, um, you know, I, I do that with all my teams to sort of get them together on the field the day before because I think there's a lot of value of putting yourself in the game. Hey, tomorrow this is going to be packed, you know, and this is where we're going to be. Um, and we show up at, at the Silver Dome really, you know, against a, to play a good Swiss team. Um, but I think at that point, it didn't really matter who we were playing. We were so excited to be in our World Cup. Uh, you know, we were in Michigan, you know, just really USA. And we're, you know, and we're playing in an indoor arena, you know, that had grass on it. Um, and it was just a great game. I think the excitement of the game just, you know, it, it goes above and beyond anything else. Now, I, I have to say personally that to me, I don't know about these guys, but it's the hottest game I've ever experienced. I mean, it was, you know, you know, I've played those MLS games in Dallas at 4 o'clock on a Saturday for TV that are just like you can't even think because your head's going to explode. It's so hot. That day was hotter than any day. Uh, because of the heat, the, the, you know, the Silver, Silver Dome didn't have air conditioning. It was a really hot day outside, so the sun's beating on the place, and you have, you know, whatever, 70,000 maybe, and 75,000. It was just, it, it was just, it was unbearable in there. But, uh, you know, in the end, we pulled out a result, and it was the first time sort of that, that we showed, because in Italy, we had played a good game against Italy, the second game in Rome, but at the end of the day, it was only considered a good game because we really didn't belong on the field, to be honest. I, I think in 1994, I think it was the first time where we really felt like, you know, we, we belong. We're competing to win games. 
So Eric Ronaldo would send me a nasty text if I don't uh, mention that he has a tremendous free kick against Switzerland. 1-1, uh, you get a point. But if not that, he would send you something about something else. Probably, <laughs> probably. Being, being Eric. Hi, Eric. Uh, but um, to get a point out of that first game, that you had to feel pretty, at least not overjoyed, but like we got a point. Like we're in decent position, right? Yeah, but we had Colombia. Right. Next. <laughs> and a Colombian side that most people pick to go to the semifinals of the World Cup. And uh, so the point was very important, obviously, which would help us get through. But um, we, I'm not sure what everybody, I don't think we've ever talked about what everyone thought going into that game. We knew it was going to be the, the most difficult game. Um, and if you go back, maybe after 10 minutes, we're lucky not to be down 2 0. And then we, we kind of got our second wind. And for about 35 minutes, right? You, we, you got your second win because you had to make about 25 minutes. <laughs> yeah. But we get, we, but we did. We, we actually put our foot on the pedal a little bit, if you remember, right? We had some opportunities, and we get the, the, the fortunate goal, or, and, and of course that has a history behind it. But um, I think we thought, and then maybe the best pass that we've ever seen at the national team level, tab to Ernie Stewart over the top and a great finish. If you go, if you go watch that pass in that game, you'd be really hard-pressed in the entire history of the U.S. men's national team. I don't know if you guys agree to find a better pass thread through two players. Um, and we ended up, uh, we were 2-0 up, and uh, they scored late, right, 93rd minute or something, and there was a little bit of pressure, but we, we found a way, and that, that's kind of where our national team took off. It was kind of the, the stage that said, okay, we're here, and as Tab said, we're here to compete. Right? We, we can compete. We're not going to win every game, but we're here to compete with the best teams in the world. Did you guys, I don't know if you necessarily surprised yourself by winning that, but was this something, like this was a Colombia team that had beaten Argentina, a really good Argentina team, 5-0 in Buenos Aires the year before, which is why people were talking up Colombia. Um, when you look back at that game, it's one of the biggest moments in the history of American soccer. Uh, did you realize that in the moment? Yeah, I yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, you, you'd have to agree. And, and we didn't let's, let's be honest, while we're all being honest up here, yeah, we were a little surprised. We got out of there with the victory. You know? but, but we were happy about that, and that put us in a fantastic position going forward. You know, we, knew, we thought, okay, we have a good chance to get through to the next round, because that's what it was all about for us in, in U.S. soccer at that point. Get out of the first round, and we positioned ourselves brilliantly to to move forward. And in that game, you know, I look back and think about you know the opportunities that Colombia had, uh, the 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 few opportunities that we had, um, and you have to think that we were fortunate there, um, given everything that we had done beforehand, the training, the preparation. It led up to moments like that. You know, to be able to struggle a little bit at times in a game, but still get a result. And, and I think that's, that's what all that psychological warfare we went through for two years, you know, really, really came in and helped us out. That game in particular made you guys instant celebrities. Did you, like, what was that like to experience that, like in the middle of a tournament to go from one to the other? <laughs> so, uh, so a couple weeks before the, uh, the 94 World Cup, I'll never forget getting on a plane and, and you know, we went to our middle seats in economy, uh, and we're traveling wherever, and I sat down next to this, uh, this woman, older uh, woman, and we started talking, and she asked me what I did. I said, I play soccer. She's, she asked me, uh, what, what, 
what's your job? I said, my, jo my job is to play soccer. <laughs> she said, how do you make money? And I said, I play soccer. And two weeks later, we're in front of a billion people. And you know, we, we live the power of what a World Cup can do, uh, individually and collectively. And it changed, fundamentally changed, the way that we view soccer in our country. And there was, you know, there was pressure in that we didn't want to screw this up. We knew we had this platform, this wonderful opportunity. And we wanted to get out of the group, because I think, for the most part, people would look at that as, uh, as success. The Columbia game was that, that moment where you know, you're grabbing flags. You grow up watching the, the, the flag moments. And there's no real soundtrack, because you're actually on the field. But you're, you're thinking of the soundtrack going on. And there's, you know, there's pictures and this elation, because for all intents and purposes, four points out of the first two games. And certainly in that way, I don't think that we wrote it up like that. No, I know we didn't write it up like that. But we, we took it and we recognized that we had done something special. And, you know, in the Rose Bowl and the iconic type of feel and moment to it and, you know, the USA. And then walking into restaurants and bars after that. Well, the bars. We didn't go to the bars. <laughs> but at least walking into establishments uh, and having the recognition and you know, people clapping and doing all that kind of stuff. It was very cool, especially for soccer because yeah. this, was, this was a good thing for not just us individually, but, but for soccer to actually have the respect and the knowledge and, the, uh, and be in front of people for the first time. Because for a lot of people, it was the first time they ever saw soccer played at a high level with the fandom and the color and, the, and all, the, all the different things. So it was great. Now, I do want to stop here because you were wearing uniforms that are kind of famous now. Uh, he's wearing one right there, the, uh, the denim jerseys with the stars on it. Now they're cool. Like, what, if, if, Throwback. If we're being honest, what was your first reaction when you saw those <laughs> uniforms? We, we, we didn't remember you. <laughs> Somebody never, else tell the story, and I won't tell it. I never, I never forget uh, Tab. I was the youngest, as I said before, and so I was, you know, just kept my mouth shut all the time everywhere, and, and Adidas came and did this big presentation, and uh, I think it was on the Rose Bowl, uh, on the field, on the or field. yeah, and they kind of had it and brought it out, and Tab just started laughing. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that kind of says it all, because we were all in shock. We were all in shock, we couldn't believe it, um, and, and they thought it was great, and I don't know if you guys ever seen the jacket that goes over it, which is, had the stripes and it was worse than the, than the top, <laughs> but um, and we, the short, we, we the shorts were no better. Yeah, we just we just couldn't believe anything. it. I mean, it was it was something that you know I felt. I think going back to '94, prior to that, and up until today is just respect, you know. And you know, these guys prior to me joining the national team were just fighting for respect in this country as soccer players and for this sport. And 94 was that first, you know, chapter of, of the world waking up to us that we, we take us serious. And then we've had to continue to do that. And, uh, you know, but I think that with the uniform was something that we thought, oh, no. You know, we got enough no pressure. Man, yeah. yeah. No, but, I, remember, uh, I remember at that meeting where, like, in the middle of the field, yeah. what you're saying. And I think if you, you know, some people recall, like, John Harks had been named to the uh, People magazine, yeah. like, Whatever, yes, prettiest yeah. people, sexy. Yeah, 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 it was one of those. And yeah. I remember telling the, I think it was the Adidas guys. I said, "Look, John Hart didn't even look good in this." You know? <laughs> people look back very fondly now, though. I love yeah. that thing. Yeah. Um, so, the goal is to advance from the group, and you lose to Romania. You still advance from the group. How important, like, was it for? 
from your perspective that the U.S. did advance from the group stage just for the big picture of how this team would be viewed from an American Well, I think no, no team had ever failed to qualify out of the first host. round. Host, no host had failed to right. qualify. So I, we thought that was a big responsibility, something that I, I think we thought about. I mean, so, okay, you get Brazil on the 4th of July, uh, Stanford Stadium, and um, what are your thoughts heading into a game against Brazil, uh, which obviously had a lot of talent on the field? I, tell you, I didn't sleep, that's, that's for sure. I mean, you look at their team, and by the way, there was a, there was a chance for a couple minutes that it was going to be Germany. So we, had, we found out, if you remember, who we were playing. We were watching uh, Mexico against someone in RFK Stadium. And the scoreline was such that it was Germany for a little while. And then there was a late goal. It might have been Italy in that game, right? Mexico, Italy. And the scoreline changed, and all of a sudden it became Brazil in like a minute. Mm. You know, and that was our opponent. And, and if you think of that team, Romario and Bebeto and Dunga and all the guys that they had in that team, I mean, it was as daunting a task as you could everything and if you go back to that game there's some moments uh in that game first two minutes of the game how we miss uh, a ball that's played across a yard out from the goal right how thomas dooley doesn't get to the ball we're thinking we could have been up one nil and then we have another chance just after that where you're thinking gosh we you know we're close and then the the, the turning point obviously is one of the the, the moments in tab's career uh, that some people remember is is the elbow because at that time we didn't have harks was out Right, he had the yellow card against Romania. I think Balboa was he. Uh, there's one other guy out. We didn't have Hugo Perez for a period of time there. Well, anyway, Tab was our most creative player, right? And it was it was the he was the one guy in that Bloody game. Was injured. Yeah, he were injured. Yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. And he was the one guy we had that could break the game down for us. Where if you look at Brazil, they had eight or nine of them, right? <laughs> or 13 or 14 of them, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and that, for me, was the turning point in the game where now we were uh, just mentally drained and um, we just couldn't, uh, we, we couldn't get on the end of one. They gave, us, they gave us fits in the second half for sure and then obviously the goal uh, that Alexi and I were part of. And, um, but I thought we, it was a pretty good account. Um, and we were feisty. Remember at halftime walking into the locker room, the fights going on? You don't, you don't remember. Obviously, you were in the locker room. Remember, we were going at it. I mean, coaches were fighting. I mean, we, we came to play. You know, for the first time, we came to play against Brazil, and it was at the biggest stage. Um, but it was, it was certainly heartbreaking when that whistle blew. Without wanting to spend too much time on it, Tab, you fractured your skull in the game. Uh, Leonardo from Brazil elbows you, um, gets a red card. Um, I didn't realize until speaking to you many years later how serious and severe and scary that was on the field. Like, there, were, there was like real concerns about your health, right? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the concern was that I would have internal bleeding, so that's why they had to take me to the hospital, obviously. Um, I do remember at the halftime, I mean, there's not many things I remember, but I do remember Bora coming in and going, are you ready to play the second half? Because <laughs> We, I got hit in the head. It was, it was right before halftime, like two minutes yeah. before, so we didn't make a substitution just in case. You know, so we finished the first half. So I remember him coming in and kind of shaking me, going, can you go the second half? And I'm like, I, I couldn't even answer. Like, I didn't know what was going on. But I do remember that. I do remember that moment. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> you know, the, yeah, the injury was a, it was a tough one. You know, cracked skull, like here. 
uh, and I did have a little bit of internal bleeding, so I was in the hospital. I actually didn't find out. I didn't find out we lost the game until many hours later, like maybe you know really late at night. Uh, of course, Leonardo came to the hospital. The president of the Brazilian Federation came to the hospital. I had known Leonardo from before. He was at Valencia when I was at Betis. Uh, so I kind of knew him. He's a nice guy, you know, I guess just a part of the game. You know, we all lose our heads sometimes, and, and I think he did at that moment. But, um, you know, yeah, it was serious. Uh, you know, fast forward a little bit without going too much into detail, but I did see a, I, I saw a specialist here in New York City uh, that was a doctor for the Olympic boxing team, and he told me, well, first of all, if you're a boxer, you, you were, you'd be finished. He goes, but even as a soccer player, if you were to get hit in the head again, it could cause serious damage. I would recommend that likely that you don't play again. So I was kind of, you know, I was within three months of the injury at a point where I likely wouldn't play the game again. Wow. Um, so you go out to the team that wins the World Cup. So there's, there's no shame in that. Um, you know, they scored late, uh, what was it, like 80s probably, 70-something. Um, and so your World Cup's over. But there's a real legacy of this 94 team, I think. And MLS obviously starts two years later. Uh, a lot of you guys were playing in MLS. Um, when you look at the overall legacy of the 94 team, um, what do you think about? Anybody? I don't know. You. you. Uh, yeah, I mean, it I goes back to having the privilege of being a part of something that ultimately helped the sport that we all know and love uh, and pushed it you know, it didn't completely change it overnight, but we still walk around and people come up uh, and say, I remember in 1994, and you know, that's when I first started watching, or, or this changed my life from a soccer perspective. And to have played a little part in that history and to have uh, hopefully accelerated uh, the growth of, of the game on and off the field because we used that platform in a positive way and were successful, that's, you know, that's a good thing. From an, from an individual perspective, you know, I, I, I see these guys and uh, what they have all gone on to do, and almost all of us are involved in one way or another with the game still, so it's, it's, it's la cosa nostra, it's, it's our thing, you know, and it's what, it's what we do, and, and it's what we love. And, you know, to, to get back to this, people ask me all the time, who's the best player you ever, you ever played with? And I always say, Tab Ramos, and he was a man out of time. So when we lost him in that Brazil game, we were losing, uh, as you guys were saying, someone that could hold the ball for us. But he was born too early. If Tab Ramos were born 10 years later, 15 years later, uh, it, it wouldn't even be a comparison with the Pulisics and stuff like that. That's how good he was. He, he was slumming it playing with a lot of us, to be quite honest. And at times, we would look around and say, He's doing stuff and thinking stuff on the field that's so far beyond what we are doing. And I'm not apologizing to you or anything like that, but, <laughs> but just, just to point out you know, the incredible quality that we were blessed to be surrounded with and all sorts of different personalities and you know, to have been a part of that, that moment. And if there is a legacy and, and people remember it and remember it fondly, it's great. And we look forward to, well, 2026 now. Well, that's what I was gonna ask about. 2026, the World Cup comes back to the United States Men's World Cup. Um, what do you think, you're all working in soccer and different things these days, what do you think about what the US could potentially do in that tournament? I, I think that for me, and, and Tab knows better than any of us because he's coached every one of these 
pretty much every one of these kids on this current national team, I've, you know, I say on the radio every day, Grant, and I'm pretty bullish on this group. I think this could potentially be the best group of players that we ever have. There's a lot of work to do. Um, there's a lot of coaching to be done. There's a lot of games to be played. But uh, when you look at, I, I look at this team kind of like we were in 1989 where, and I'm not comparing players at all. What, what I'm comparing is sort of where they're at. They're at the start of their cycle. Where in 1989, we were at the start of our cycle for that particular group. That's where they are now. Uh, as far as the World Cup, if we can generate half as much in, uh, interest as we did in 1994, it's going to be it's going to be amazing in in 2026, and we're going to have a team. In my opinion, again, they can all maybe they all disagree with me. I don't know, uh, but we're going to have a team that can compete uh, with just about anybody. And I really feel that with. And again, Tab can talk more to this. He's coached all of these kids at the youth national team level. Um, we've got some special kids now. They got to go make it happen. Yeah, well, first of all, I can't, you know, I'd like to thank Alexi for what he said before. I mean, I can't just take that, I can't just take that for granted. And, <laughs> you know, but no, I can't, I can't just take that as, uh, you know, like I, I knew that was going to happen because that's obviously a great honor. It's always here. I think we've all have heard about how good we are, you know, at some point. And I think when you hear it from a teammate, I think that's when it always means the most. Um, and that's, you know, I do this with the youth national teams, too. I make them all come together after every game and talk about themselves and how they played. And also to mention what player on the field they thought they did a good job. Because regardless of what the press can say outside, it always means a lot more to us when you hear something from someone who's there with you working every day. And so thank you for that. I really appreciate that. Um, so as far, as far as the players are concerned, I, I think I do agree with Tony. I, I'm, foolish, I'm, I'm bullish about the players that we have coming forward, but at the same time, we have to be careful in not branding them something. Um, because at the end of the day, we're just, we're just talking about potential here. You know, this is not production of players. So at some point, you know, potential needs to become production on the field. And at some point we have to look at, okay, you're good because you're good and because you're doing things that are good for the team and you're winning games and you're producing goals and you're making plays and you're doing all those things. Not because one day you will. Um, and so I think we, you know, it's going to be a process and it's going to take a little time and I think we need a little patience with that. Claudio, you're the sporting director at NYCFC. What would you like to see happen between now and 2026 to put the U.S. in a position to, to make a deep run? Well, I think, uh, I think we also need to be honest and real uh, about where we're at. And I think uh, you know, I love spending time, uh, you know, Tab work, working at U.S. Soccer. We have these conversations that as excited as we get externally about the player and the future and, and the possibilities of what 2026 could be, you know, every day is the day that we can't, you know, just, you know, forget and think it's, it's not important. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done up until 2026. Uh, World Cups are also blurs. Uh, they, they, they go by, you blink, and it's gone. So while it's going to be amazing and exciting and it's going to be bigger than 94, uh, and I do believe the team will be better because of the pathway the players have had compared to ours, you know, we need to also be honest about where we're at. And uh, the rest of the world isn't slowing down. <laughs> they, they're continuing to invest more and more in, in, in sports science, in coaching, in player development. And you just see that around the world. So as much as we're getting better, we also have to be honest. And I think uh, in my role, you know we, we, you know, we get in rooms and we just need to be real and honest about where we're at. And sometimes it may hurt 
some people's feelings, but that's the reality. That's what happens around the world. I mean, Italy doesn't qualify, Holland doesn't qualify, and people get in rooms and, and start criticizing each other or what we're doing or, or our style of play or how we're developing players or how we're picking and profiling players. And, and, and I feel we need to do that more often all the time. And, and sort of in my role, I have that opportunity in, in New York NYCFC to make sure the players have the right mentality. Tab always talks about that, is the mentality of the players to make sure when we get to this stage that they're ready. Because, you know, again, my experience in 94 and all the World Cups was it is, it is three games and it's, you gotta be ready. And every play matters, every moment matters, and the players need to understand that. So I think we we're in the right way, but also, we have to be honest at times, we have to be critical, we have to ask questions. And I think that's happening more and more. Media is doing that, and I think that's good. Um, but I think that's for me in my role, something that we have to make sure as excited as we get about the sport and its growth, we also have to take a step back and, and make sure you know, we, we, we look at it and make sure we're doing the right things all the time, not just when we don't qualify for a World Cup. And in some ways, that's what happened. We didn't qualify for a World Cup, and everyone started scrambling and like, oh God, what, what's wrong? Well, a lot of us knew there was things wrong already leading up to the, the failure of not qualifying. But because it happened, all of a sudden, you know, people started to make decisions and, and new positions were created, and we're looking at player development, and it kind of just shook everyone. And that's what we needed, but we need to do that all the time. Not when we have failures, but also when things are going well. One thing I've noticed that's a big difference between the culture of soccer in America in 94 and today is soccer is just so much more available to consume now. Like, the U.S. was one of the worst countries in the world in which to watch soccer as recently as like the early 2000s. And now it's one of the best, if not the best. Like, you can see games from all over the world. So that includes, obviously, the, the national teams. But it includes MLS. It also includes teams from Europe. I guess what I would ask is, does that change in the culture of consuming the sport help with player development? Just because it's more part of the culture now, and even events like the ICC this summer bringing those teams to America where you can see them up close, how much does that help with, with like producing players, do you think? I think, I think it's huge. Uh, so you have the ICC where you have some of the best international players in the world. These are the players that that, that the little ones want to be like. Uh, you want to imitate them. You want to do the things that they do. So I think from a development standpoint, uh, I think it's great. You know, and, and what you're saying about having soccer more available in this country, we're very lucky with that. You know, I was in Germany a couple of weeks ago uh, visiting clubs for my future U20 players at the World Cup. And, uh, we, I, you know, Real Madrid is playing Barcelona. It was almost impossible to, to get to watch that game on TV. They, they just don't have it. It's a regular league game, and, and they just, unless you have some special pay-per-view, you're, you're not getting that game. In this country, we're very lucky that we have soccer from just about every league live. Uh, not everyone has that. I, I, I look at that, and what, what you're mentioning is there is more of the sport out there. It broadens the interest. As, as younger kids are able to see it, and with that interest, it, it broadens the pool. So you have more people getting into the sport, more people being involved, having it in the daily conversation. It just generates, I think, not only the interest, but players willing that might have gone and been, you know, ticked off to, with other sports. You know, now they start joining, you know, soccer. You know, and that's extremely important. So it gives, you know, tab, 
bigger pool to pick from. It allows Claudio to make his team at NYCFC better. You know, those are the things that we want. You know, that's part of the joy of what 94 brought about, I think, is everything that we're seeing here today is, is a, a growth of the game, an exponential growth. And, and to jump back to what you said is we're talking about 2026. If we can marry the potential talent of these players with the potential of everything around the game, I think we're going to see another exponential growth of the sport, a big boom in this country. So it's not just what happens on the field, it's everything that's going on around it as well. I want to give you guys a question that I get a lot, which is, will the U.S. win a men's World Cup in our lifetimes? Yeah. We could win in 2022. I know, I mean, and it's not, it's not being dishonest, and that's not, I know that's not what you were, you were saying there. You were thinking much bigger picture, and you can't just focus on the, on the summer, but... You know, and, it, and it's not just American exceptionalism, and I don't think I'm being delusional when I say we're going to the World Cup, the Men's World Cup, to win the World Cup. And look, a team like the United States with, relative to everyone else, a limited history, uh, and certainly a limited history of success, you need the soccer gods to smile on you, but all teams need a little bit of luck uh, here or there. And when we played Brazil in 1994, yes, it's Brazil, and yes, we knew we were up against it, but we had played Brazil, we would played Germany, and we understood that on the day, things can happen. And, right. and for us, things needed to happen. So when people ask me that question or ask you that question, I don't know what you say, but I say, yeah, we can win a men's World Cup in the next World Cup if things, <laughs> if things fall, uh, fall into place. And certainly with the younger generation that we're talking about here and the potential, we know it's still just potential, and I don't, I don't sometimes people laugh when you say that, and, and I agree that we have to be honest and we have to you know, understand who, who and where we are and have a, a bit of humility. But part of what I love about what I think is the greatest country in the world is that we believe that we can do things that many people don't believe that we can do. And that's what makes us great. It's what makes us do things um, that, uh, that stand the test of time and, and changes perception on a continual basis, not just in sports, but in life. I always say I'm planning to live to 150. So if that That's happens right. in my lifetime, yeah. You're hedging your bets. <laughs> um, well, I want to ask you about the interaction last night that you guys had with the women from the 99 Women's World Cup champions here. It was really cool to see you guys interact as someone who's followed the sport for a long time. And I'm wondering how you guys feel about what they've been able to build and what they've done but also, do you kind of wish there was more, there was more positive interaction, even today, between the men and the women on the national teams? Well, what they did is, is incredible, right? They've won two World Cups. They've won how many Olympics? I mean, that's, that's the pinnacle. That's the, they've gotten to the top. Um, and we'll try and do it again in three months' time. And, and, and likely we'll be standing in the end uh, with an opportunity to do that. Um, we, I can tell you, our, our, that particular group, there were times, uh, and Claudio can tell you better than this, where we actually hoteled together at the same place, right? And that, 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 led, that led Claudio to where he met his wife, right? And um, so we had really good react, uh, relationships with them as far as supporting them. Um, we actually had girls come and train with us when they were in Mission Viejo for a little bit, when we did technical work and all that stuff. I, I don't know what the relationship is now between the two, but I... I I would hope that um, there's a sense of uh, support for both of those groups, right? I'm not around it, uh, but I would hope that both groups 
support each other because I think there are things that when they grow the sport, uh, it helps the men's team and vice versa, right? There are things that go hand in hand and um, they're, they're just, they, they've been, as far as on the field, they've been great, but this particular group of gals, the 99s, they've been the most incredible ambassadors, not only for our sport, but if you go back and think about how much they've changed in women's sports, not only here in the US, but what they've done to launch things around the world and initiatives around the world, I can't imagine that there's any group of girls that have done more than them. Um, they'll be up here, by the way, next on the platform, so please do uh, remain. Um, we'll open it up for some Q&A. Um, we got a microphone. Okay, excellent. Um, well, there's a going. Here we go. Um, I, I've been fortunate enough to be involved with the national team. Um, obviously, as a player, I, I want to do more. I want to be involved with the World Cup. I want to represent my country on the biggest stage that I possibly can. Um, do any of you guys have any advice on, uh, obviously, like a, a good work ethic, a good mindset helps, but any like professional tips to, to help get there? Yeah, I mean, from, uh, for me, it's, uh, people ask me, it's, it's the mentality. Uh, that's the most important thing. Um, your mindset, how much work you put into it, um, believing, being able to come back from setbacks, uh, and I think having the hunger uh, to, to constantly keep going. And, and that's the most important thing, not a specific move or you know, a training regime. It's, it's, it's really all up here, and I think that's the difference I always see from players that, that make it and then make it further and then make it to the highest levels is their mindset and mentality is, is unique and you see it across all sports. And, and for me, that's the one thing is, is you know, understanding that it's just, it's another level all the time. And uh, I think going back to what I learned from the teams that used to come over and do come over is that, you know, when you're around it, how serious it is for a result for a, a team from Italy or Argentina. It means everything from all around the world. I, I realize how much it means to them. I grew up in an Argentinian family. My dad was from Argentina, and soccer was everything. Um, and and I, that was the lesson I got when I was able to watch these teams up close and meet coaches, and, and they just live the game every day. And so I realized that if I need to make it, and when I went to Europe, it, you know, all day, every day, I was watching games, you know, talking to people, asking questions. Uh, and that's what I took out of watching uh, big players and big clubs and big national teams, being around coaches, was it, it was just another level of professionalism that they had that I don't think, if we're honest, existed here in the U.S. And now it's, it's certainly getting better and better and better. And so, uh, but again, to answer the question, I think it's just the mentality for me is the most important thing. Before we move on to another question, I hear you have uh, an interesting story. Who's your favorite player of all time? Uh, I think someone, my favorite player and someone that like, I have a lot of parallels with is Tim Howard. Okay. Um, <laughs> I, I, obviously, the, the Portugal game uh, is something I don't know, I, I don't, like, I, <laughs> I stay up on weeknights watching like YouTube videos about nice. uh, <laughs> that. It just stuff like that 
wants to make me better and wants to make me represent my country even more. Well, I, I had heard also that you literally live in a house that the backyard touches the backyard that Tony Miola yeah. once had. I, I, was, <laughs> I, I wasn't alive yet, but uh, I mean, I've heard stories. I used to play, used to play flag football with my dad. I am Josh. This is Josh. Oh, give Josh a hand. Uh, I'm putting it all together. He lived in back of me, but he loves Tim Howard. I get it. I, get it. I, get it. I know it works. I also, I also. Your oranges. This is the guy. That's right. Well, hey. I also. Does it help being from Jersey? Absolutely, it does. Yeah. What? Why don't you come out? Come here. Come on and hang out with us, man. Come on up here. Good to meet you. By the way, Timmy's a good one. We got a chair for him? You can answer some questions too, right? I was, I was up here like, yeah. You were? I was up here earlier. Okay, wow. There we go. Wow. In the future, look, look at this. We're hanging out with the cool guys. <laughs> By the end of this, you got to change your answer, though. That's I'm just saying. No, I'm joking. I'm just joking. Good to meet you. So now your favorite player is Tony but you're, you're a goalkeeper, right? I am. You yeah, are? I am. Uh, I was in the IC Futures last tournament uh, with my club now, Cedar Stars. Been with the national team. I just have just a genuine love for the game. How old are you? I'm just turned 15. You're too, so you're in high school? I am. I'm a freshman in high school, yeah. Got it. We do have a big jersey contingent up here, especially now. Um, everyone except for Kobe, right? has like a, a Jersey connection. Um, you went to college yeah. here, or in Jersey. Are you? Yeah. Um, <laughs> before we get, move on to another question, because we got more Q&A coming, I'm just curious, was there yeah. ever sort of a West Coast, East Coast situation happening inside the national team? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, of course. You know, it's always this issue of uh, East Coast players, the Jersey guys, oh, we're the best. You know, I hear all the stories. You know, Carney, you know, where they all grew up, hearts at him in there too, you know. Have. You guys are all like, from what I hear, they were like all best buds, like a, you know, a triumvirate, just hanging out, you know, running that town. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely, there was a little bit, you know, back in the day, but it's just, you know, joke, jokes, having a little bit of fun with one another, you know, West Coast, East Coast rivalry. You are outnumbered here, though. Yeah, I am outnumbered, but we, I mean, I think everyone here understands that West Coast is where the dominant performance is coming from. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we do. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you have a question? Good afternoon. Uh, I would like to hear your thoughts on the pay-for-play system we have in this country and how it hurts or benefits the growth of the sport in this country. This question is for the five of you. Well, Six. I, I, I answer Six this of one, you. I answer this one every day on the radio, right? So I'll, I'll start and these guys can chime in. First off, I'd love uh, for my kids never to play, uh, pay to play sports, right? Second, I have baseball players in my family. I wish my baseball playing kids paid what they pay in soccer, because I pay triple, right, of what we, what we pay in soccer. Third, I, I, I'm okay with anybody that wants to eliminate pay for play. What I haven't heard for years is a solution to who's going to pay for coaches, who's going to pay for fields, who's going to pay for maintenance, who's going to pay for travel, right? If you tell me that we're we're the Netherlands, right, the country is this big, and you find a big sponsor 
um, that pays a gazillion dollars a year and academy kids don't pay to play, right? Then I can understand, but we're talking about the United States and how many academies in the United States right now? Uh, it's like 70 something in All right. the first division. In the first division, there's 70 something. To find a sponsor, we're lucky that MLS teams, for the most part, other than two, I think, right, are completely free. Uh, we're lucky that those exist, right? And that's all, sort of everyone's goal, right, for young players is to get there and all that stuff. I, I'm okay with anyone that doesn't want their kids to, to play to play the sport. But what's the solution? Where does the money come from? How do we pay for all of those things? That's what we have to try and figure out. Can you do it in a club, maybe, and you find a sponsor? Yeah, no doubt. You can do that, but overall, I just, and I don't know if you guys feel the same, and you're in it, uh, Tab, Claude, you're in it as well. I don't see it going away ever, right? And how does it hurt the game? That part, I'm not quite sure. Do we maybe lose some kids uh, along the way? Yeah, do we have a system in place? And, and Tab has an academy, so he can tell you better than I can. Do we have an, a, a system where we have scholarships to try and help those kids along? Yeah, we have those, and I think they all have those, right, just about. Um, so we try, you're going to lose someone along the way somewhere, right? And that's the unfortunate part about it. But I can tell you, everyone up here that sits and goes, watches games and goes to the park and sees kids, our eyes are open all the time, right? To try and find players. I just don't know, Tab, if you ever see a solution. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I would repeat everything that Tony said, but I could say, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm a good example of what the way things have been. So I think... I think the, the, the good players have never really paid, right? So, you know, I think what, who pays is like sort of everybody else. You know, if you, if you can't afford, if you're a good player and you can't afford to play the game, I don't think anyone will leave you out of their team. So I remember, you know, when I was growing up, I, you know, I remember coming, you know, coming home to my dad and saying, hey, dad, you know, I, I got picked for the regional team. And, and, and he'd go, oh, that's great. He wouldn't even know what that is, but... He'd go, oh, that's, that's great. You got picked for the regional team. And then i go, oh, well, you know, it's a, it's a camp at Penn State, and it costs $250. He goes, well, you're not going, you know? Like, and so, so I wouldn't go. I would not reply to the regional team or anything like that. And then eventually, you know, two days before the camp, I'd get a call from the regional, somebody, one of the regional coaches saying, you know, we, you're not signed up yet. And I said, well, I'm not signed up because I'm not going. And they'd be like, no, no, we want you here anyway. So there's always been, you know, I played for the Thistle Club in Kearney, you know. Like, I think for all the players today and in the past, um, there's always been a way for us to help the players who can't afford it. Do we lose some? Like Tony says, yeah, you lose some. But today, we have more advantages than ever before. You, you know, if you're a really good player now, you can go to just about every MLS academy and play for free. And you train every single day. And in, in a lot of them, you can live there. And a lot of them, they, they give you a free education to go with that. I mean, so the opportunities are great. I think we're, we're doing better than we've ever done before. But... You know, to, to finalize what Tony said, I don't think the pay-to-play will ever go away because, you know, coaches, you know, nowadays are spending ten to $20,000 in their coaching education. So when they're, you know, the reason they do that is so then they can, they can coach uh, the proper way, but you need to pay them for that. That's an investment that you make in your future. And I'm talking about all the coaches nationwide. And so when they coach at a club and they're coaching a 15-year-old, a 14-year-old, a 12-year-old, they have to get paid for that. Somebody has to pay. You know, when I take my daughter to horseback riding, if, we're, if we don't pay, she ain't getting a horse. And they don't give you a horse and say, yeah, you know, you can't, that's fine. They don't give you one. When you go to piano lessons, you gotta pay for that. Like somebody's teaching and you have to pay. So I, I don't think soccer is different. I think you, you know, I, I think Tony made all the great points and, uh, and I think that this will always continue this way. I don't, I personally don't think 
unless there's a huge, you know, multi-billion dollar forever account, um, I don't think it'll ever go away. I just, I'd, add, add my story growing up is that unfortunately we don't have any more. And uh, my experience was my, my dad coached me. He made zero dollars. He was a volunteer for six, seven years. We had 14, 15 players every year, this more or less the same players, all from immigrant parents. Nobody paid anything. The uniforms were $100 that a dad, when he flew to Brazil, would, would buy the whole Gremio outfit, and we'd wear that one year. Then we'd wear <laughs> Porto when he went to Portugal. And the funny thing was, when someone lost it, it was lost. We didn't have any, someone would throw on a white shirt. Benfica now. But yeah, Benfica, Benfica. But, I think uh, for me, what was really eye-opening, because I grew up and then I was in high school at St. Benedict's, went to UVA, and then was off 13 years in Europe, and I, I'd lived there. I was home in the U.S. for about a month when I played with the national team, but when I came back, I, 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 was, I was disappointed because what I saw was just this, this, what I would say, this big racket of soccer youth business and, and coaches and A, B, C teams on clubs, and it was all for one reason, and I think... I hope uh, there's more people that somehow come out like my dad and, and others who just did it because they loved it. That doesn't exist anymore. Now you have everybody doing it because they make, not everybody, because a lot of people are, are in it for the right reasons, but it's just different now. And uh, it's, I'm, I don't like it, I'm gonna be totally honest. You go to Europe, you go to South America, and, and there's coaches there whose sole purpose of this, and we were talking about this last night, at a youth club is to try to get a kid to AC Milan or to Inter Milan or to Roma. And, and, there's, and, and this basically, we don't have that here. You know? and, and so um, working for an MLS team, I, I'm, I'm excited because we, all the players who come to us don't pay anything, not one dollar. And what that does do is you see it elevates the player's uh, excitement of being there and they realize this is special. So we've certainly elevated, I think, with the, you know, uh, going away from paying at, at MLS clubs. But um, I, I just don't like it. I don't, all the backpacks, all the stuff that's kind of included with it. You know, I have, I have kids as well and we're paying so much money. Uh, I think what we do, need to do is sit down as a country uh, in different areas, and every focus moving forward for youth soccer should be two things. Creating leagues that reduce travel and reduce cost. And I think it could be done. We have a lot of smart people in this country. If, if that focus is there, then we'll drive down costs and, and, and still have good players coming out of everywhere. But um, I, I don't think it's impacting, because this came out when we didn't qualify for the World Cup, the whole pay-to-play model. Um, we still have a lot of good players coming through, and what Tab said as well, I completely agree. If you're good enough, you get a chance to play. I don't believe that guys are being lost and, and, and we're, you know, because they can't pay to play. If there's a good kid somewhere and he can play at a club, they'll scholarship him and he'll play. So I don't think that's as big of an issue that sometimes is, is communicated out there. Um, but yeah, I just, I, I just wish and I, I believe in urban areas is where we can make a difference. Like here in New York, and as a club, we're making a big focus at NYCFC to make sure we're really getting down at the grassroots, introducing the game, giving opportunities to kids who didn't have it. And so uh, I think there's a big opportunity in urban areas to grow the sport. And I think that's the last sort of untapped area that we haven't hit as a country. We got time for one more question. Charlie Stilitano is in the front here. <laughs> 
Thank you, Josh. Uh, Taz, my favorite player of all time. Tony's my favorite goalkeeper. Alexi's my favorite defender. You're my favorite midfielder. You're my favorite guy on the right side up front. Okay. So. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> all right, Kobe. No, but I wanted to ask a question about the mentality. And I think that, you know, a lot of you guys have a Jersey connection, and I'm saying this, but part of it is growing up tough to have this mentality. And I know if you're from Jersey, you're good looking and intelligent, right? Uh, and you probably have a tough attitude. And you talk about growing up in a family with your immigrant dad, who I know, and your immigrant dad, and your immigrant dad, and no, yeah, grandfather. I, I thought it was your dad, too. So you grow up, Kobe, yours? No. Nope. Okay, you're an American on the West Coast. That's okay. Uh, but I'm, I'm thinking about the mentality. You know, you say you need a professional mentality, right? And I remember Bob Bradley saying to me during the 2006 World Cup, we were watching it, and he was like, you got to understand that the Italians, those guys in that game, know that they're going to be judged for the rest of their lives on how they did in that game. And what you said before struck me, you know, but how do you, how do you create a professional mentality? Well, I think it does take a little bit of time and we're certainly further along than, than where we were. Um, but this goes, I think, to me, it's, as I said before, it's, we need to learn as a country from the rest of the world in this. And that's where I learned it, you know, and I, I didn't, I didn't see that here. So I was, when I was 20 years old, I went to Germany uh, and won college player of the year and all these things. And I went there and I literally got the biggest wake up call of my life because I was not prepared to, to go into that locker room at Leverkusen at all. So my experiences up until 20 years old just did nothing for me. They got me obviously that opportunity to be on the national team and, and to go to Leverkusen. But I literally had to start over, and the one thing I realized, and I had some amazing teammates, Paulo Sergio, who won the World Cup with Brazil in 94, Bern Schuster, who came back from Spain from 13 years, and Rudy Fuller, who won the World Cup with Germany. And those three players in particular, I just literally every day from the moment they walked in, in the locker room, on the field, until they left, they would go stretch before, they would stay late, and, and that's when I realized, like, well, that's why they're really good and have careers. and so. Uh, it's a learning process that I think we all went through, that at some point you have to elevate your mindset. And I think for me, the, the best way is, is experiencing it. Uh, and now, these, us you know, being sort of next generation guys here and being involved is just making sure we, we, we hold players accountable. I, I love talking to Tab when he's coaching you know, the under 20 team has been involved with the national team, and, and that's what he's always talking about in terms of when you go play France like they just did, and you, and you, you know, it's just there right in front of you for our players and our coaches to see the mentality. So I think for me is experiencing it. So if coaches and players, which we have now, not only can travel, but with what we're doing here at ICC and, and the youth tournament, it's so eye-opening for our players. And at our academy, the best way to develop our players, a strategy within our club, is traveling or playing international opponents because it's completely different. They get looked at differently, they get cursed at in games, they get kicked, um, this decision making is quicker. Those kids at 16 are already looking to make a living out of it. So the, the experience that young players have today is not something we had until we, we were older and I think that's 
that's what's exciting is, is that we have opportunities now to travel, national teams are going everywhere to play, and I think that's something that we got to, that message has to keep getting pounded to our, to our players and coaches about the mentality, because I, I really think that's, that's the biggest difference right now that we, we, the gap between us and the rest is the mentality. McCloud, you said earlier about being honest with ourselves, and it's always going to be American. We could have the greatest league and players that are being paid ridiculous amounts of money and a culture that loves soccer, but it's always going to be uniquely American in how we play on the field, how we watch the game, how we think of the game, and the culture surra surrounding it. And so we, we have to deal with what we have. And yes, we can have best practices and we can import uh, not just talent, but practices fr from the outside, but recognizing that, first off, other than you, we're a bunch of older guys and we grew up in a very different time and the world has changed, our country has changed, kids and young players have, have changed, what you're going through is very, very different than what we went, what we went through. I mean, it's no surprise here when I look down the line at, at these guys, you know, they're all, they all out of the college system, which I know is, is going away. And we spend so much time focused on the 90 minutes, so you, I guess it's more of an answer to your question earlier about advice. The, the 90 minutes is important, absolutely, from a soccer perspective. But that other 22 and a half hours of the day, making sure that you have the tools and the skills to survive that other 22 hours is actually what is going to help make you the best player during that 90 minutes. And we got to make sure that we're focusing on it, and we have to make sure that we're focusing on, I think, with an understanding that it's always going to be uniquely American. That's not something to fear, that's not something that's bad, it's just the reality of the culture and the world and the history that we have with regards to, with regards to the sport going forward. So that's my advice to you is, yeah, concentrate on that 90 minutes, but make sure you're doing whatever it ends up being off the field to make sure that you can handle that. Because the best players that I have ever seen, the best players I've uh, played, have an ability and have the tools and the skills to deal with that other 22 and a half hours. And that's ultimately what makes them great on the field. Uh, yeah. Let me get into this uh, mentality thing a little bit. We said immigrant parents up here. Charlie, I got I to gotta call you out a little bit. My parents from the Deep South, Mobile, Alabama, during segregation. So that's where my mentality comes from. Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's what I'm saying. And, and to get on the mentality kick, I think it's more of, of an issue of just, like Alexi said, it's not just uh, on the field. I think it's everything else. It's at the home. That's where, where it really starts. And when you come in and step on the field, it's can you transition and keep a tough mentality when the setbacks come your way? As, as we have discussed up here, it's, the coaches can give you the environment to succeed. It's about you as an individual, as a player, what you want to do. If you've decided at you're 15 now, if this is the route that you want to go, are you going to dedicate yourself and go down that path, even with the setbacks that come your way? Because there will be setbacks. You know, that, that's one thing that you have to understand. All of us up here that you see that, you know, we have been part of 94 and we have done some amazing things. Every single one of us has had some major setbacks that we had to overcome to get to where we are today. And that, I think that's one of the most important things that you as a young man or a young woman that's out there can look at and say, okay, if those setbacks, setbacks come, what can I do to keep pushing forward? On that note, guys, thank you, everyone, for coming. Thank you, the 94 Manhattan.
Thank you for joining us on live stream. U.S. women's national team from 99 will be on soon. Thanks for listening to the Planet Football Podcast. I'd like to thank Alexi Lalas, Tony Miola, Claudia Reyna, Tab Ramos, Kobe Jones, and the International Champions Cup, as well as producer Brandon Nix and everyone at Sports Illustrated who supports this podcast. Just a quick reminder, it's a huge help if you subscribe to, rate, and review the podcast. It helps people find us. See you next time.